This morning we'll be back in the book of First John. Um, we'll be chapter three, starting in verse four, and then we'll go through uh, verse seven of chapter four. So if you'll please stand as we read God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. First John three, starting in verse four. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is the commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in him and he in them. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 
The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 14, we looked at the joy of knowing the weighty God. And then that led into chapter 2, verses 18 through chapter 3, verse 3. We said, hey, what thrills our soul? Because the thing is, is when the joy of knowing the weighty God thrills our soul, it produces that hope, joy, and comfort that our hearts are clamoring for this side of heaven. And this morning, the comments we've read before, we're going to read again from British New Testament theologian Donald Guthrie about 1 John are heavily in view this week where he says, nowhere else in the New Testament is the combination of faith and love so clearly brought out. And it seems probable that this is emphasized because the behavior of the readers leaves much to be desired. And as the readers, it leaves us with this question, has our head knowledge, with all of our incredible, love it, Presbyterian theology, made its way to our heart? Or another way of asking it, essentially, has our head knowledge made our capacity to love others larger or smaller? Because John here is encouraging, let the work of Christ change us. Let sanctification in action do its work so that we can love others, that love and faith go together. And then also want to read again what one pastor said about 1 John This book encourages believers to have the full assurance that they've been born again. That is, they have new life, spiritual life in them that will never die. John wants you, God wants you to experience something in this letter that makes you profoundly confident that you have passed from death to life. So John and Jesus are jealous for us believers to know judgment is behind us, death is behind us. Because our judgment happened when Jesus was judged in our place. And our death happened when Jesus died in our place. And therefore, new life is in us, and this life cannot perish, cannot be taken away. It's eternal. That's the assurance John and Jesus want for us. As 1 John 5, 13 says, I write these things to you that you may know that you have eternal life. When we know that God's love is set upon us and nothing can take it away, That's going to give us the ability to practice loving others really well. I do want to warn you, there is, in typical preacher way, there's three points. But one of the things I learned from a pastor in Jackson, sometimes he'd have two-point sermon, one-point sermon, three-point sermon. But most often, he would have five, six, seven, eight points under one of those points. So we're going to get to these first two points really quick. And we're going to get to the third one. You're going to be like, man, we're going to be out of here quick. There's six points under the third point. So just setting, setting expectations here. You know, don't want you to think you're going to get out of here too quick. But the first thing that John is getting at here is practice. And yes, we are talking about practice. And for some in this room, you might be familiar with that viral Allen Iverson clip where he's talking about practice. Man, we're talking about practice, not a game. And in that clip, it's highlighted, he's far more concerned about the game than he is practice. And he even says at one point, how can practice make me and my teammates better? One of the things that we know, it's that time of year in Texas that most people love, and it's high school football. Most of the games happened this past Friday for the first week of action. I don't think there was a single team that just showed up Friday night, and that was the first time that they got together. I have a hunch that those practices, full practices, probably started at the end of July. They've been practicing five days a week. Imagine there was probably some strength and conditioning 
that went on over the summer, probably some seven on seven different camps. There was a lot of effort, a lot of practice that went into one night. And there'll be another night, but there's maybe eight to 10 of those. And the reason that there's practice for all of these things is coaches know, instructors know, teachers know that it's through practice that we begin to sharpen, we begin to refine the skills, that it adds knowledge, brings expertise, brings improvement. It even adds confidence. Sadly, it can promote arrogance. We do not want that. But it does add confidence. And it prevents the status quo. But one of the things that practice can do, like sometimes providing arrogance instead of confidence, practice can, we can practice the wrong things. And then in the Christian life, when we begin to practice the wrong things, it can lead to destruction. And it can hurt those around us. We catch what John calls kind of the, the, the practices that are not good. He mentions some sinfulness. We're pretty familiar with lawlessness. We might not be as familiar with. So kind of lawlessness, what is he talking about? And it's a sin with a disregard for the implications or consequences that come with repeated sinful behavior. John's reminding us, hey, it's important to take stock of our lives and see if we're practicing sinful behaviors again and again and not addressing them because they can take us down a very dangerous road. And on the positive side, verse five, look at who John's talking about in verse five. And we're gonna learn why it's good that there's no sin in him. Jesus, he came to take away our greatest problem, sin. We have his righteousness. So God doesn't see our sin when it comes to judgment day. We're no longer declared guilty. Uh, I love that in the time to kill that, 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 you know, where he's yelling guilty, guilty, guilty. It's the opposite for the believer. Not guilty, not guilty, not guilty because of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. But it does bring up the question, if we have Christ's righteousness and our sin has been separated from us as far as the east is from the west, does that mean in this life that we're not going to struggle with sin anymore? Wish that was the case. We will still struggle, battle, and wage war with sin until Jesus returns or we die. But since Jesus has been so good to us, what that should do is produce in us a desire to see sin decrease until that day he returns or we're called home. And that's that term we mentioned earlier, sanctification, that process by which God's making us more like his son. And he's given us the Holy Spirit to help slay the sin that can kind of so easily creep in to our lives. And as Christians, we should always want to see sin decrease in our lives. And if we don't want to see sin decrease, then we have to ask, do we really love Jesus? Has he really changed us? Are we really enamored with the amazing grace that he offers? So as Christians, we need to make a practice of pursuing righteousness and slaying our sinful practice habits. The second thing, over and over and over again. Practicing righteousness produces a love for others. Man, John keeps coming back to this. 
He comes back to it throughout the book of 1 John, but this section here, the next section of chapter 4, he is going over and over again, love others, love others, love others. I mean, it's that teacher who keeps pounding that same point again and again, right? We get it. It's going to be on the test. We'll study it. Can we move on to something else? Or it's that parent constantly reminding us from me back in the day, hey, when you get home, close the garage. When you get home, close the garage. When you get home, close the garage. And it's like, all right, I get it, I get it. And then I'd still forget to close the garage. And so here it's John doing something very similar is, I want you to get this. This is really, 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 really important. And you're going to be prone to forget. You're going to be prone to not love others. Because the thing is, is he knows It's hard. It's really hard to love others. And he knows that it's been this way for a long, long, long time. Because what example does he go back to? He goes back to Cain. He goes back almost to the very beginning. And you have Cain killing his brother. And the thing is, more than likely, Cain didn't just wake up one day and said, boom, today's the day I'm going to kill him. What it was is day after day, Failing to love his brother, practicing righteousness, caused hate, caused jealousy to build up in his heart. It's a reminder, that's why we have to practice loving those around us each day. Because if we don't, sin can take us down some very dangerous roads. And then John uses some language in verse 15 to kind of reinforce the severity of this command where he says the one who doesn't love his brother is a murderer. And he's using that shocking language to show the severity and why it's important to love those around us. Because when we don't, it is like murdering. And so the rest of this chapter 3, 16 through 4, 7, we're going to kind of talk about the motivation to keep practicing. I told you we get to point three quickly. And what it is, is the motivation is love defined. He is greater tender mercy, relentless opposition. The goat, listen well. The first thing, motivation one, love defined. We kind of have to ask, what is love? And it's probably one of the most overused, misunderstood words, because you'll have a kid clamoring, I love pizza. And then you'll have plenty of people in Texas saying, I love the Cowboys, maybe depending on the day, or I love my spouse. I love my kids. I love my job. Those can't all be the same kind of love. I mean, and so obviously nicely John spells it out for us. How do we define this kind of love? And he says he laid down his life for us. And we need to do the same and lay down our lives for our brothers. This is not saying you know, we need to physically die every time. That's not the point. It may come down to that at some point, but not likely. What it's asking is, we need to die to self. We need to die to our interests and put others' interests over ours. That our decisions would be based more on how is this going to benefit them and not how is this going to benefit my agenda. It's learning to think beyond ourselves and even being willing to lose social capital. I can remember sitting down with students. They come to me and they say, I have, there's this kid and, it, and he's just struggling. Like he, 
it's new, he's kind of awkward, it's, I just feel so bad for him. And I said, well, have you invited him to sit down at lunch with you? No, I can't do that. Because everybody else is going to think, you know, like, think less of me. And, and we look at that example we're like, gosh, man, stupid junior high kid. Come on, just do something simple like that. But even that social capital, how is this going to make me look to others? And the determination we need to say is, by doing this, am I loving others well? And if I lose this because of it, then that's okay. Because even here, John tells the world it's going to hate us at times. So what are some examples of possibly laying down our lives for others? Verse 17 and 18 say some of that. It could be the giving of physical goods. You know, it could be physical things, food, clothes, money. He said it could be something that doesn't seem as simple to a junior high student. But inviting someone over to our house, sharing a meal, having them sit at the lunch table with us. The other thing that a lot of times, one of the things I realize, I'm more prone to complain than I am to encourage. And for those of us that have either had a tough week, a tough month, when someone calls us and just says, hey, I'm going to let you know I'm thinking about you. I'm praying for you. What can I pray for? Or they send us a text saying, hey, I remember, you remember when we did this and we get a good laugh out of it. Is the thing is, is, how much are we encouraging other people? You know, when I go to a restaurant, am I more prone to complain about the waitress, the temperature of the food, or am I looking to encourage those that are there? Sadly, I'm more often going to complain than I am lift up. And then one of the things that John talks about here, and it's so obvious, it's so much easier to love and talk rather than indeed um, man, we can talk a good game, but following through in action is a lot more difficult. And man, we've got it even easier to talk a good game because we have this tool called social media where we can really make it look like we talk a good game. We showed up for five minutes at this volunteer activity and we've got 17 pictures that we're able to post or we say, hey, please pray for this ministry or that. We can talk really well. But are we really loving indeed well? Because it's our deeds that reveal if the love of Christ has truly gripped our hearts and we're willing to lay down our lives. So as God's love abides in us, it does enable us to do what doesn't come natural. Think beyond ourselves and laying down our lives as we love those that God places around us. The second thing that we see in terms of motivations, he is greater. Verses 19 through 24. Without Christ, our hearts condemn us. I mean, that's the thing is we know who we really are. When we lay down at night, we've probably had those nights where we know the evil that runs through our veins. We know the bad things that we've done, thought, or are capable of. And we realize we're not quite as good as most of our grandmothers think we are. Um, The incredible news of this verse is that there's no sin beyond the reach of God's grace. So we never have to go to bed at night wondering, did God stop loving me today? Did what I say, did what I do, did that cause him to stop? His love never fails and our sin never keeps him from loving us. And that's a comfort that God knows. Um, Obviously school just started 
And one of the things to kind of think through that, they, that God knows, we would hate to go through school on the first day and for everybody to know the worst things about us. I mean, if we think about it played out like this, is obviously you have things like a top 10, whether it's music, whether it's the top 10 plays of the day, but there's also these things, the not top 10. And you think about if we had an iPad attached to a lanyard around our neck and we had to walk through our school in the not top 10, the worst 10 moments of our life were just on a replay. We would never want to come back to that school again. The thought of people knowing everything about us is frightening. It is one of those things that would put us in a corner. I don't want you to know this about me. But the great thing about Jesus is he sees that not top 10 and where most people would push us away. Jesus is saying, come near. I paid for that. I'm greater than that sin. And one of the things I love that it's John who's writing this. John also wrote, obviously, the book of John. And in John 4, you have this encounter with Jesus and the woman at the well. And obviously we know this woman at the well was not the moral beacon of character that the community was saying, be like this woman. There's a woman who'd been married multiple times and was living with someone, as Jesus put, who is not your husband. But after that encounter with Jesus, what is it that she says? She goes into the town and says, come and see the man. Come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. (laughs) I would imagine that's not a list most parents want written for their kids. And she's saying, come see this man. Because she knew that there was grace. As we'll talk about in a minute, there was mercy in Jesus. He is greater And it's that reminder that the Jesus Storybook Bible puts so well to never forget that God loves us with a never stopping, never giving up, never ending, unbreaking, always and forever love. And that's that third motivation. Just mentioned it, God's tender mercy. Verse one of chapter four talks about it. We are beloved. John didn't have to refer to his audience as beloved. But he's very intentional by referring to his audience as beloved. He's reminding that original audience and us today, we are loved by God the Father. He is saying, don't forget it. Don't forget God the Father. Because remembering God's love for us gives us the ability to endure, to enjoy, and to make God known to others. The fourth motivation, it's a little bit of that negative. Verses 2 and 3 talk about it. That relentless opposition. We talked about it last month when we talked about the Christian has to expect opposition. Just as the, whenever, whatever team's going, they're expecting there to be opposition there. And even said that opposition is relentless. It was like that Georgia team coming at my beloved TCU Horn Frogs. The fourth quarter ending was the only thing that was going to end that bloodbath or that West Texas dust storm that you see coming. And it just keeps coming. Dirt blowing through the air. And so what John says to do here, he says, test the spirits. Okay, test the spirits. Is this, is there something I put in the air? Is there a barometer for this? What what, what, what are we doing? Essentially what he's saying is he's saying, be cautious. Don't just blindly believe everything. He wants them to know, hey, spiritual deception, it's real. There are going to be those who want to deceive you, that want to take your eyes off your heavenly father who loves you. And sent his son for you. And so that term, some of us probably heard before, gullible. 
Easily deceived, believe anything. We can trick them. There may be that family member that we always like to play that trick on. But what's the opposite of gullible? Question everything. Can't trust anyone. Doubt most things. We may say, hey, this is the conspiracy theorist. So is God asking us to be the opposite of gullible? Is he asking us to be the conspiracy theorist and never trust anyone? That's, that's not the aim of John here. You know, God wants us to trust him most of all. And he does want us to be able to trust others. But he also wants us to be on guard. He wants us, as Paul says, stand firm in the faith. Because as John said before, Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour. The thief comes to seek, kill, and destroy. And then John mentions here false prophets. So what is a false prophet? It's people who claim to speak for God, but they actually proclaim a message that's anti-gospel. A message that turns people's eyes and hearts away from Jesus as the only answer for their sin-plagued heart. And what people also do is they'll usually point, hey, you need to look inside yourself. And once you become the best version of you, then you can go and do these things. Or they'll say, you need me to unlock God's greatness. If you ever have a pastor who says that, usher them out the door quickly. John also here is saying, detect this anti-gospel message Everyone that confesses Jesus came in the flesh, that's a sign of the Spirit of God. John's stressing the importance of the humanity of Christ because without the humanity of Christ, we wouldn't have a representative to take away our sin. Jesus came to do what the first Adam could not do, live a perfect life. The sinless Savior in human flesh is our representative. So God the Father sees the Christian as sinless. We also have a God who can sympathize with us because he came in the flesh. And then everyone who confesses Jesus is the son of God is also a sign. John stresses the importance of the humanity of Christ, but he's also stressing the importance of the deity. The spirit of God affirms both humanity and deity of Jesus Christ. There's many who have claimed in just the humanity of Christ, but deny the deity and vice versa. So anyone who doesn't affirm the deity and humanity of Christ is not confessing Christ. John even calls it the spirit of the Antichrist, the spirit that's opposed to God and the things of God. So it's the deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ that remind the Christian of how loved they are in the Father so that we love others well. The fifth motivation, the goat. Verse four, who's the greatest? We're a world that's consumed with this idea. Who's the greatest? What's the greatest? What's the greatest vacation spot? What's the greatest college team ever? What's the greatest band? What's the greatest performer? Whatever it is, we're thinking, who's the GOAT? We're always on the search for the latest and the greatest. And here it's John saying, no, God's the greatest. God's greater than anything or anyone in the world, including Satan. And then John uses that term again that he's used throughout this book, little children. For us, it's reminding us, you have a good heavenly father, that our heavenly father is greater than all. And I had a song from Cayman's Call popped in my mind this week, and it says, this world has nothing for me, but this world has everything. It does. This world has all sorts of things. Say in a moment, there's so many things that are screaming for our attention. Love me, worship me, give me your eyes, give me your times, and I'll fulfill because I'm the greatest. 
John's telling us right now, no, God is the greatest. And when he fulfills us, then we're able to love others. The sixth and final motivation, listen well. Verses five and six are telling us this. Um, There's two voices we can listen to. We can listen to the world's voice. or We can listen to the voice of God. Um, Some of the places where the world might try and turn our ear towards. Sometimes there can be pressures from parents. There can be pressures from coaches, teachers. I had youth ministry we had in Jackson. We had one week where we did VBS. And in the morning we'd serve VBS at our church. And then we'd eat lunch in the youth house. And then we would head to the inner city and do VBS there. And in between, there was a mom who pulled her daughter out into the hallway. And this daughter had asked if so-and-so could come over. And the mom, in a loud voice that I could hear, said, no, you cannot invite her over. She's down here. You need to be up here. And so most of the time, ladies and gentlemen, listen to your parents. But there's even times where we can have pressures from parents and from people who we love and who love us who can't be misguided. And we have to run through that filter. And it can be other things like, as we mentioned, social media can turn our eyes and we think, man, they look so happy. They look so satisfied. It's things that we can see, television, movies, music. Even too, one of the things that I learned in youth ministry is friends were able to influence about more than any other group. Who are our friends? Who are we hanging out with? Where are they pushing us? There are so many voices in this world And it can be easy for us to lend our ear to the voices of the world, to conform to the world, instead of the God who made us. But the voice that should be ringing in our ears, in our heads, is verse 6 reminding us it's God. We need to make sure our ear is attentive to the voice that matters most. And so if it's God that we need to be listening to, if it's his voice that we need to hear, and I think all of us agree it's not an audible voice that we're going to hear How do we listen to God? We read his word. We saturate ourselves in his word. We have been given a great gift. Prayer. How often are we on our knees? How often are we laying our requests, our thanksgivings to the Lord? This right here, being in church with one another. For me, it's been a joy to see the way in which y'all interact with one another before the service, after the service. There's a genuine love for one another. And God uses his people to speak and encourage each other. And then one of the things that we have, I would love the early Reformation fathers, they would be, they'd probably be as giddy as a junior high girl if they knew that they could listen to every sermon whenever and wherever they wanted. It would be the ultimate OMG from all of our early Reformation fathers right there. That we can listen to all sorts of stuff. And so that also means there's a lot of bad stuff out there. And if you are wondering, hey, who are some good ones to listen to, both podcasts, both sermons? Ask other folks because there are a bunch of them out there. And then obviously things that we get to do corporate when we get to sing together. We can listen to music on our own. There are so many great ways in which the Lord can speak to us. And are we tuning in to those channels in a sense? So as we listen to the voice of God, the beautiful thing that it does is it deafens the soul's shriveling routes. 
that the world's saying, come here, listen to me. And instead, as we listen to the voice of God, it's taking us to a greater joy. Greater joy comes as we listen to the voice of God over the screams of this world. And as we listen to the voice of God, it allows us to do what John's talking about here. Love others well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you do speak to us through your word. And Lord God, that that is one of those practices, Lord God, that you would help us to put in to play, Lord, that we would be in your word, that we would long to be in it, Lord God, that we would long to be in prayer, that, Father, that as the week goes along, we are looking forward to Sunday. We are looking forward to being with the people of God, to sing, to confess, to recite, to hear your word. Lord God, and pray that you would give us an appetite for your things, Lord, whether that be other books, sermons, podcasts, or that we would delight in hearing your voice calling for us. Lord, help us to practice well. Lord God, we need you. In Jesus' name, amen.